Welcome to the audio channel of Dr. Sadat. Preach Christ, teach the Bible, make disciples. So church, I'd ask the congregation to stand and please turn to Psalm chapter 2 as we will first pray and then read the word of God for today's sermon entitled Cosmic Rebellion. Psalm chapter 2. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. Your word is a lamp to our paths and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servant to deliver a word of power so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Psalm number 2, verses 1 to 12, the NASB says, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. Please be seated. So again, the title of my sermon today is called Cosmic Rebellion. And today's sermon, we're going to answer one question. We're going to answer the question, why are people hostile to the idea of God? Why are people hostile to the idea of God? One question, two distinct answers. Now, Psalm number two is the second part of the introduction to the book of Psalms. Psalm number one, obviously, being the first part. Psalm number one and Psalm number two are like opening two doors into the house that is the book of Psalms. They serve as an introduction. Psalm number one is personal in scope. It says, how blessed is the man. Psalm number two is cosmic in scope. It talks about nations, peoples, kings and rulers. Psalm number two is the second primer to alert us to what is next. Psalm two has messianic implications, meaning it foreshadows the coming Messiah. Psalm number two is quoted seven times in the New Testament. Every time it's quoted in the New Testament, it's referring to Christ. And the central idea behind Psalm number two is this. 
that Christ the King is coming. And when he arrives, he's bringing his kingdom with him. When the king comes, it's going to have cosmic implications. He's not going to very quietly sneak in the back door. When Christ the king arrives and his kingdom comes with him, it will have cosmic implications in the very fabric of reality. Will forever be changed. Now make no mistake. Jesus Christ is already king. He's not waiting to become king. When Jesus Christ ascended after his resurrection, he didn't go up into heaven and is now hanging out in heaven's break room. When he ascended to heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, and he now, as we speak, holds the scepter in his right hand, because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. As we speak, Christ is the King. And when I speak about his kingdom coming, it's coming to a climax. It's coming to a peak. It's coming to its apex. And when that happens in a distant future, what exists now in the heavenly realm will invade the earthly realm. And all of creation will in one voice say, Christ is king. So his kingship is already established. But his climax is still in a future reality. Psalm 2 informs us then that the coming anointed king is the hope that drives the heartbeats of the rest of the Psalms. So when you read Psalms 3 through 150, there's a a beating heart. There's a love. There's a longing. There's a longing towards the future for a king that is to come. Now, we have to be biblically honest, because Bible history tells us that Psalm 2 was used when kings of Israel were coronated. So when King David, for example, ascended to the throne, Psalm 2 was used in celebration of him. So there's an immediate fulfillment of Psalm 2 in a historical earthly person. But as we go through the verses, as we go through the words and exposit them, you'll soon realize Psalm number 2 talks about someone that no earthly king could ever fulfill the prophecies of. The things that Psalm 2 talk about exceed the ability of a natural king. It points forward to the Messiah. Now as far as the content of Psalm number 2 goes... The psalm describes the resolve of the world to rebel against Christ the King. And then there are three responses. There is the response of God the Father. Then there is the response of God the Son. Then there is a response of God the Holy Spirit. The psalm naturally divides into four different stanzas, which I'm going to call four different acts of three verses each. And our focus today will be on Acts number 1, Psalm number 2, verses 1 to 3, which I'm going to call Cosmic Rebellion. 
So let's read these verses again. Psalm number 2, verses 1 to 3. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. The psalmist begins by asking why which is always a great question. When you ask why enough in life, you're going to get some meaningful answers. And the psalmist asking why does not suggest concern. He's not looking, he's not sitting in a high tower, scratching his head, saying, hmm, let me see. I wonder why the nations are in uproar. I wonder why the peoples are devising a vain thing. That's not what he's saying. Asking why does not suggest concern. The Psalter is looking out at the world, and he seriously wonders why a world, why a world full of creations are revolting against a creator. The psalmist looks at God and said, this is the omnipotent creator of heaven and earth. This is the God who, when he said, let there be light, the universe came into existence. This is the God who, when Joshua was fighting, made the sun stand still for 24 hours. This is the God who crushed the nation of Egypt to let his people go. And the psalmist is asking, you here on earth... You're revolting against this God? Are you crazy? That doesn't make any sense. There's no logic. There's no rationality. And he's asking, why? And he asks, why are the nations and the peoples? Look how ironic this is. The cosmic rebellion against God is diverse. It's multicultural. It's pluralistic, and it's very inclusive. There are no barriers to entry. You can come as you are. As long as you don't like God, you can join our cosmic rebellion against the Most High. And isn't it ironic that when it comes to revolting against God, all of a sudden, people become unified? The cross united Jews and Romans 2,000 years ago in Palestine. The Jews and Romans hated each other. And then all of a sudden, when it comes to executing, crucifying Jesus Christ, everybody is on the same page. Pontius Pilate and Herod were sworn political enemies. They were political rivals. And what do the Gospels tell us? They hated each other. Then Jesus dies. What happens? Now they're buddies. Now they're drinking beer on the weekend, hanging out in their man cave. And look at the progression of this rebellion. It says, why are the nations and peoples? In the Garden of Eden, you had one man revolting, Adam. In Samuel, now you have one nation rebelling. The Philistines led by Goliath. Now you have nations, plural, peoples, kings, and rulers, all united against God. And they're so together, they even speak with one voice. In unison, they say, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. 
The point is that the rebellion is growing. The resistance is growing. And in Revelation, it tells us in the end, the entire world will be unified in cosmic rebellion against the Most High. The text says, why are the nations in an uproar? The King James Version says, why do the heathen rage? The point is this, this will not be a quiet resistance. This uproar is loud, this uproar is brash, and this uproar is very public. The word rage comes from a Hebrew root that refers to violent waves crashing into the shores of the sea. It hits you over and over and over again. There's an inward restlessness which drives the rage. And when we apply uproar to everyday life now in the 21st century, the nations in an uproar tells us there is an uproar in houses of worship where every single Sunday false doctrine is preached. There's an uproar in living rooms where the media tells us this is what reality is. And there's an uproar in legislative bodies where sin is legalized and the righteous are oppressed. The nations in an uproar say, they tell God, we don't want your morality. We don't want your plan for the family. We don't want to accept God's distinction of male and female. And we don't want the church talking to the state. So I ask you at the top, why are people hostile to the idea of God? And here's the first answer. Because they hate him. Why are people hostile to the idea of God? Because they hate him. The nations and the peoples, they have a king. They have Christ the king who is the Lord's anointed, who is already sitting on the throne. But the nations and peoples can't stand it. And history validates this fact because they killed the king. They hung the king on a cross and they executed him. Now notice this. When the King James Version says, why do the heathen rage? Rage is an extreme emotional response. It's not an intellectual one. Rage is an extreme emotional response. It's not an intellectual one. This gives us clear insight into the psychology of non-belief. Think about this for a second. We live in an age of skepticism. We live in an age of doubt where many people say, I don't believe God exists. God isn't real. Now let's think about this. If you in your mind were to say to yourself, God isn't real, God does not exist, then why would you have a deep-seated enmity against God? Why would you have a deep-seated rebellion and just a bravado about lashing out against God Almighty? The tooth fairy doesn't exist. We know that. The boogeyman doesn't exist. We know that. But if someone had a militant fervor or fiery hatred against the tooth fairy, that wouldn't make any sense because those things aren't real. I mean, if God really doesn't exist, then why bother? If God really doesn't exist, then why so serious? Having a compulsive emotional response to something that is not real is not rational. It doesn't make any sense. 
what does make sense is if despite all of your objections, despite all of your resistance, despite all of the arguments you raised against God, deep down inside in your heart, you actually know God is real. You actually know God exists. All the arguments you bring forth, that's just a a smokescreen. Deep down inside, written on your conscience, you know God Almighty, Christ is King. But you can't stand it. So why are you hostile to the idea of God? Because you hate Christ the King. And as a result, now you rage. Now you have this deep-seated emotional response which has nothing to do at its core with intellect against Christ the King. I find myself getting into these deep philosophical and scientific debates with atheists and agnostics. For whatever reason, they love finding me and asking me questions. And I'm at the point now where I cut through all the nonsense. I mean, they want to talk about ontology and Darwinism and fine-tuning and design and all this stuff. I have one question. I begin now with this. Why do you hate God? Period. That gets to the heart of the matter. Because we could spend hours and hours and weeks going back and forth. It has nothing to do with intellect. Everything to do with a deep-seated emotional response and a hatred of Christ the King. And here's what's interesting. When you really read God's Word and you really understand what the Bible says, there are only two ways to respond. Either fiery hatred or fiery adoration. Why is that? God's word is a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways. It's not a matter of life and death. It's a matter of eternal life and death. And when you truly understand what God is telling us, it requires all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, your entire being now bows before God Almighty. And you either say, my goodness, God has given me everything. Praise be the name of the Lord. Or you say, I have to serve God? No way. I hate this guy. There are only two legitimate responses, which is why, in my personal opinion, there are some people who are non-believers who actually understand what the Bible says better than some Christians. Because they truly get it. They truly understand what the Bible says, and they can't stand it. So if you find yourself in the middle, and you're lukewarm, and someone asks you, what do you think about Christ? Or what do you think about God? And you kind of shrug your shoulders. Or you kind of say, eh. Then my question is, do you really get what God is trying to tell us? Because this isn't a matter of life and death. Where you will spend eternity should set a fire in your bones. Because God, through his son, Jesus Christ, has saved us from eternal damnation and has reserved a seat for us in paradise. So why are people hostile to the idea of God? Because they hate him. Now the text says, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? 
Everyone get your pens ready. Psalm 1 says, How blessed is the man who meditates on the word of God day and night. Psalm number 2 says, Why are the people's devising a vain thing, a vain thing? Here's what's key. Meditates and devising in Hebrew both come from the same roots. But when that same principle, when that same root is used in a positive sense, when it's a blessed person meditating on God's word, it's translated meditate. But when it's used in a negative sense, it's translated devising, it's translated plot. So the same principle, when you use your time, when you use your energy, your resources in favor of God, walking the blessed path, now you're meditating something good, but the same principle applied negatively in a revolt against God, and now you're devising. And that devising has no ultimate purpose because they're devising a vain thing. There's no logic or reason behind it. If you walked into the office of financial advisor, and you said, Mr. Financial Advisor, I want to invest all of my life savings into a stock portfolio that's going to crash and have zero value tomorrow. He would look at you and say, what is wrong with you? You are insane. There is no logic. There is no sense. There is no intent or purpose to what you're doing. But you are, you are militant in your persistence. You say, I want to give up everything. I want to give up all of my time, energy, and resources into an empty vessel, something that's going to fail. Again, he would look at you and say, what is wrong with you? Why are you devising a vain thing because it has no purpose. It has no lasting value. And this is why the psalmist is asking the question, why? Why are you in an uproar? And why are the peoples devising a vain thing? Because the psalmist knows that to rebel against God is the most irrational thing you can do. And the vanity of the unrighteous is never a match for the sovereignty of God. Verse 12 of Psalm 2 says, Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. In other words, God says, If you revolt, you die. If you submit, you live. The people and nations look around at one another, they scratch their heads and say, Hmm, let's revolt. There's no point. There's no point in devising a vain thing, and this highlights the depravity of the human heart. This highlights the corruption of the human heart that actually invests its time, energy, and resources to build and construct something that is predetermined to fail before it even starts. Just ask this question to Nimrod who wanted to build a tower of Babel to ascend up into God in the heavens. And he was devising vanity because his plans ultimately failed. Just ask Nebuchadnezzar, who was the ancient Babylonian king who manufactured a statue of himself and made the people bow down to his statue instead of God. He ended up eating grass like an animal with long hair and claws. He was devising a vain thing. 
Now, I developed this idea of raging and vanity for a very specific reason. Because Psalm 2 cannot be fully understood unless we take hold of the concept that it is about the human heart raging against the king. And this is a revolt that has cosmic proportions. In other words, it is a cosmic rebellion against Christ. And because this revolt is cosmic in nature, it's going to have cosmic proportions. When a creation mounts an insurrection against the Creator and the corruption of the human heart longs to dethrone God, you're not going to walk away from that encounter unchanged. And it's not just you, it's those around you. So this cosmic rebellion is going to change not only you, it's going to change society, it's going to change culture, it's going to change the world around you. Look, this is the bottom line. If a human being stands in the presence of God, there's no way they're going to leave that encounter unchanged. But the opposite is also true. You can't mount a rebellion against God and not expect something bad to happen. So when this cosmic rebellion is in the human heart of nations and peoples and they come together to mount this war, individuals, families, societies, cultures, nations, the entire world is going to change. This is my point. Cosmic rebellion in the human heart is the disease. It's the root of the problem. But it's going to have many symptoms. It's going to have many effects. And we as a church can spend a lot of time chasing after symptoms. But until we realize there's a root of the problem, nothing will ever change. When people come to see me in the office, for example, and someone has a diseased gallbladder, you're going to have pain in the right upper part of your belly. You're going to eat a big meal. Your belly is going to get bloated. You're going to have gas. You're going to feel nauseous. You may have pain in your right shoulder. If it gets really bad, you may have a fever and you may turn yellow. I could waste my time for weeks chasing after symptoms, giving you Tylenol for fever, giving you medication for nausea. But until I reach the conclusion that the core problem is that your gallbladder needs to come out because it's diseased, nothing will ever change. And when we apply this way of thinking, we realize that so much of reality can be interpreted. Life in the 21st century can be interpreted with the lens of cosmic rebellion in the human heart. Let's make this plain. What if I told you that sexuality in 21st century America has nothing to do with sexuality? And it has everything to do with cosmic rebellion in the human heart. There are lots of symptoms. There are lots of effects. But the core root of the problem is cosmic rebellion in the human heart. What is transsexuality? 
According to Oxford English Dictionary, transsexuality is when a genetic man or a genetic woman wants to associate themselves with the other gender or they take medication or have surgery to switch genders. Let's take a step back. You have a man, for example, who is genetically designed to be a man. Every cell in their body is 46XY. Their tongue cells, their skin cells, their toenail cells all say, you're a dude. That's what the creator assigned to them. Now, what does the creature say? The creature says, I don't agree. The creature says, I don't like, I don't like this assignment. I'm the one who gets to decide what my gender identity is. In other words, the, cre- the creation is telling the creator, you're not sovereign, I am. And here's the kicker. Man and woman were made very good in what in Genesis? In God's image and likeness. Male and female. Image and likeness. Image and li- So wait a minute. Transsexuality has nothing to do with transsexuality. It is the creation saying, God, I don't like your image. I don't want it. The symptom is transsexuality. The, the cause of it is cosmic rebellion in the human heart. What's homosexuality? Homosexuality is the creature telling the creator, I get to define what proper biological function is. It doesn't matter how biology works. I get to decide. What's abortion? It's the creature telling the creator, you know what? I don't think life is sacred. What's more important is my personal convenience. So it doesn't matter if life is sacred or not. It doesn't matter if I have a life or the potential of life growing inside of me. I'm the one who decides what is sacred. Now, why am I telling you this? Am I telling the church this so we can demonize a particular group of people? Absolutely not. Am I telling the church this so we can say, look at us, we're better? Absolutely not. I'm telling you this because we can't live life working on this natural plane. We're not dealing with social problems. We're not dealing with political problems. We're not dealing with economic problems. The root of all of these problems is bigger than all of that. It's cosmic in proportion. And until we realize we're dealing with a transcendent, spiritual, cosmic reality... Things will not change. Why do you think the suicide rate amongst members in the transsexual community is 10 times higher than the regular population? Why do you think the rates of depression are 10 times higher? Because they're going to war with God. Of course you're going to begin breaking down because you're raging. You're engaging in a cosmic insurrection against the creator. That's not someone to be chastised. That's someone who needs love. That's someone who needs to be told, you were made in the image and likeness of God. He made you perfectly well. You don't have to change because God knew who you were before he created you. God bless you, brother and sister. Now come. Let me show you what Christian love is. 
Now you may be asking yourself a very valid question. Preacher, you're making all these bold statements. Where do they come from? I'm glad you asked. Because Psalm number 2 directs us to Romans 1. And Romans 1 locates us in 2017. Paul talks about, he doesn't use the exact words, but he talks about cosmic rebellion in the human heart in Romans 1. Romans 1 verse 25, the NASB says the following. For they, who are they? Individuals who suppress the knowledge of God. They take that sense of God on their heart and they just cram it deep down so it can never say anything. That's who they are. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. In other words, they engaged in cosmic rebellion. They saw God in the throne and said, no, I don't agree. I don't like it. They took God off and put something in its place. And what's the result? Paul writes, Romans 1.26, For this reason, for what reason? For the reason I just told you, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They engaged in rebellion. For this reason, God gave, watch this now, God gave them over to degrading passions. They exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Sound familiar? It leads to a depraved mind, unrighteousness, wickedness, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, and those who practice such things give hearty approval to those who practice them. This is like reading a essay by someone standing atop a skyscraper in Manhattan in 2017 making an observation of life. How could these things be? How could Paul hit it on the head 2,000 years ago? Did he know something we don't know? Well, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's the answer. But Paul also knew that in the last 2,000 years, the human heart has not changed. The same depravity, the same corruption, the same longing to engage in cosmic rebellion still exists. And Paul knew something key. He knew the problem with human beings is never what's around them. It's what's inside them. The problem with human beings is never what's around them. It's what's inside them. Just ask Adam. Adam was given the Garden of Eden. He was in paradise. He had no institutionalized oppression. He had no lack of justice. He didn't have a poor family upbringing. He didn't have socioeconomic status to hold him back. He had everything. He had zero excuses. And what happened? He rebelled because the problem with human beings is not what's around them. It's what's inside them. So when we embrace Psalm number 2 and ask ourselves, why are the nations in uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? And we look out at the world and we see terrorism, we see gang violence, we see political divisions after a, after a presidential election. Those things have nothing to do at their core with terrorism, with gang violence, and politics. They have everything to do at their core with cosmic rebellion in the human heart. So I asked at the top, why are people hostile to the idea of God? 
And here's a second answer. Because the human heart by its own nature is an enemy to Christ the King. Why are people hostile to the idea of God? Because the human heart by its own nature is an enemy to Christ the King. In 1 Timothy 1 verses 15 to 16, the same Paul who wrote these verses in Romans, you know what he wrote? He said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Wait a minute, that doesn't seem to make any sense. How could one guy call out sin in one book and then label himself this horrid sinner in another? How are these two things possible? I tell you why. And this wasn't Paul being zealous in his youth. This was Paul writing within the the final five years of his life. This was a mature Christian man who's been through life, who's been through experiences making a wise observation. Paul realized that if you want to have a sincere and honest and intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, the first thing you have to admit is that by your own nature... You're not his friend. You're an enemy. By our own nature, you and I and everyone, we're not on the side of the good guys. We're in the rebellion. We're the ones saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords away from us. Because here's something that Paul had insight into. Do you know what the first step is in becoming a friend to God is? Is that you admit that you are his enemy. In order to become a friend of God, you must first admit that you are his enemy. Why is that? Because if you admit you're an enemy to God, that tells you that tells you, you need someone to save you. That tells you you need someone to deliver you. That tells you you need someone to reach down from up high and scoop you up from the depths and to bridge the gap, to be a bridge that takes you from a position of rebellion to one of grace. In other words, when you admit you're an enemy to God, you realize you need a savior. You realize you need a king to redeem you. And when you realize you need a savior... The good news is that you already have a savior. You already have a king who is Christ already seated on the throne. And when you stand face to face with Jesus, you begin to realize that Christ the king is unlike any other king you've ever met. Because Christ the king was for you even when you were against him. Psalm 56.9 says, This I know, that God is for me. Christ the King had every right to turn his back on you when you were leading the charge, when you were leading the rebellion against him, but he never fought against you. You begin to realize that in the height of your sin, in the height of your revolt against God Almighty, It was Christ who was the one who wasn't fighting against you. He was the one who was fighting for you. And when you come face to face with Christ the King, and you have your sword drawn, and you have your club ready to clobber him, he says, look at my wrists. Look at where they pierced me. 
Look at my feet. Look at where, look where I suffered for your iniquities. He said, my son, my daughter, my child, you are waging war against me. But before you were born, I was always fighting for you. Now then what happens? You have your sword drawn and you realize you're standing face to face with the God who was championing you from the very beginning. You're raising your fists against an almighty king who is not against you, who is for you. For you. And now what happens? The war is over. You're fighting against someone who's been fighting for you from the very beginning. Now you're disarmed. And now you realize what Christ the King has been doing from the very beginning. And now you get it. There's no one to fight against because Christ always was fighting for you, even when you were leading the charge against him. And now the king that you hated and were a sworn enemy of becomes the king that you love and trust in with all of your heart. That, saints, is the introduction to Psalm number 2 and an introduction to Christ the King. Church, God bless you. to this sermon by Dr. Sadoffel. For more valuable content and resources, please visit wcsk.org.